Hello and welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Ariel Mond, a PhD candidate in history at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Annette Joseph Gabriel, Assistant Professor of French at the University of Michigan. We discussed her new book, Reimagining Citizenship, How Black Women Transformed Citizenship in the French Empire, published in 2020 with the University of Illinois Press. The book follows the lives, writings, and political endeavors of seven Black women in the mid-20th century and shows how their visions of anti-colonialism imagine new possibilities for citizenship that were global and decolonial. In our conversation, we talked about ethical and interdisciplinary research practices, centering Black women in intellectual history, and thinking globally about citizenship in the past and present. Reimagining liberation um, proceeds with proceeds with the basic definition of citizenship as, um, as you write, an individual's relationship to the state. Um, so you show this through the actions of your historical subjects and interlocutors, um, but also through your own process of becoming a French citizen while writing this book, um, as you so um, poignantly discuss um, in the preface. Um, so how did you come to this research um, and how did your own understanding of citizenship um, and an individual's relationship with the state um, change while doing this research? Yeah, uh, that's that's such a great question um, because it's it's a question that asks that asks I think to to think a little bit about 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 origins and about process um, and about I guess sort of our own personal implication and, and stakes in our work, right? Um, and so in terms of sort of coming to this process, I, I came to the subject of this book largely through negritude. So thinking about and studying the negritude movement, um, you know, in, in France and in, in the French speaking world, the sort of literary, cultural, philosophical um, movement to, to valorize black identity, blackness and um, in the African diaspora. And one of the things that is particularly remarkable about negritude is a sort of like trio of founding fathers, right? There's something, um, I guess, really, really poignant about, about an origin story that is a trio of founding fathers. Um, and then, you know, as someone like, like, T.D. and Sharpie Whiting shows in her book, Negritude Women, right, that that origin story actually looks a little bit different, um, right, and, and that, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of women scholars and intellectuals who, who played a key role in that founding moment. But what was interesting to me about Negritude and about that intellectual history was the understanding of that trio of founding fathers as poets and politicians, right? As, as intellectuals who were also at the, the sort of the forefront of, um, of, of political movements, um, anti-colonial political movements, right? And anti-colonial anti-colonial movements that look, look quite different across different spaces. So, you know, departmentalization in Martinique um, versus independence in, in Senegal. Um, and so the, what was interesting for me then was to think about women intellectuals, the way that Sharpley Whiting does, um, but in that sort of dual role of writers and politicians, right, as, as intellectuals and activists. And that for, for me was a process, right, of coming to the seven women um, that, I, that I write about in this book. And so to get at sort of the, the second part of your question is how, how then does my understanding of citizenship change as I work through the book? I think what, what I hope emerges in the book is that um, to think about citizenship uniquely as the relationship between individuals and the state is to, is to look at citizenship quite narrowly, right? And that the women in this book are um, thinking about citizenship in, in, in multiple registers as different kinds of communities that are that are international, that are transnational, that that leave the nation behind entirely, right? And that think about community formation and about relations of power within those communities in ways that very quickly go beyond, um, right, the, the sort of the nation state model, because being part of the French empire already demanded, right, that sort of dismantling of the nation state, the, the primacy of the nation state. Um, so that's, I think, how my understanding of citizenship um, evolves or, or emerges from, from the, the writings of the women that I write about, um, is to think about the different kinds of communities, um, the different forms of belonging that ultimately disrupt and challenge narrow and exclusionary definitions of citizenship. 
that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, that um, that answer kind of neatly um, ex uh, provides a very expansive um, way to talk about um, my next questions and and the whole project of the book, actually. Um, but I want to, I think, zero in on um, one of the first things you said um, in relation to the story of um, the founding fathers of, of negritude um, and intellectual histories of anti-colonialism more broadly. Um, so part of your intervention in, in the book is to demonstrate, as you say, um, how intellectual histories of anti-colonialism that neglect the contributions of black women and focus exclusively or primarily on these founding fathers um, are necessarily incomplete. Um, and you further show how despite the challenges of archival silences or um, as in your terms, more uh, archival invisibilities, um, black women anti-colonial thinkers can be rendered more visible in the historical record when we expand our definition um, of what can be analyzed and what we can consider um, as anti-colonial intellectual texts. Um, so one example um, for listeners who, uh, who may not have read your book yet, um, your analysis of Suzanne Césaire includes her poetry and essays, as well as a governmental report that she wrote about American standardized testing in Haiti. Um, and all of these you discuss as intellectual texts of anti-colonialism. Um, so this comes up as uh, a question of, of genre of, of these different types of sources, um, but also it struck me as a question of um, discipline of um, both literature and intellectual history and um, history more broadly. Um, so from this, I wanted to ask um, what concerns or considerations of discipline um, or interdisciplinarity went into the project um, and how did they structure your research process? Um, that's, that's, that's a challenging question because Thinking about discipline for me is always challenging, right? On, on one hand, um, you know, like, like you say, my, my work is very evidently interdisciplinary. And on the other hand, the very term interdisciplinary, right? In, 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 in a way that I think of the term international, for example, right, are, are, um, are terms that leave the, the foundations intact um, as they try to work across spaces. So by that, I mean, you know, that that literature is its own discipline and history's own discipline and and that to be interdisciplinary is really just to sort of work in the spaces between these two disciplines, but to leave those disciplines intact. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently in the context of this book, because I didn't quite set out to I didn't sort of start off by saying I'm going to do an interdisciplinary project. Um, and I don't know that I ever really articulated things that way for myself at any point in the in the writing. Um, what happens, I think, is that the sort of mixed mixture of methods, if you will, emerges organically from the text that I'm looking at, right? So, so because you give the example of Suzanne Césaire, I'll, I'll stick to Césaire as an example. Um, it's it's possible to write, you know, uh, an entire book on Aimé Césaire. It's possible to write an entire book on one poem by Aimé Césaire, right? Like Notebook of Our Children's Native Land, and that's been done. Um, but with Suzanne Césaire, you have those seven short essays, right? And that's it. There is there there are no reams and reams of of um, of published works. There is no there is no large corpus like there is with her husband, and so it becomes really difficult to to stick to to one method because you can't leave anything on the table with Césaire, and that's very much the case for pretty much all the women that I write about, right? You have to look at not only their published works, but also their personal correspondence and also their movement and also their speeches and, and something as small as a visa or a stamp and a passport becomes a text, right? These All of these things become texts that speak to a sort of a, an intellectual trajectory that speak to, um, you know, the movement and the shape and the definition of their ideas. And so because the texts themselves necessitate that methodology, 
psychology, right? That that moves and, and weaves between disciplines. Um, you know, that's that's sort of ultimately the orientation that I that I brought to this research. And so that that's sort of how how the question of discipline kind of structures my research. Um, partly a question of necessity, uh, but then you know it also becomes very evident very quickly I think the the advantages of doing that right is that some of the the constraints of disciplines some of the things that are impossible in a traditional kind of disciplinary method um, become possible once you start to weave between these disciplinary boundaries and so I'm thinking for example of conversations that I have with historians about my book um, you know who remark on the literary methodology and the focus on you know sort of um, the, the way that language is working in a text um, I talk to literary folks about my book who then remark on right the sort of the, the intellectual history right so so the 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 what 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 quickly becomes i think apparent is the value of thinking about what is what is useful in our disciplines but also um a kind of a, a multi-tool multi-pronged approach um that is necessitated by not only the dearth of of uh, of texts and historical sources, like with someone like Cezelle, for example, but also because the very genre, right, the ways that these women wrote, demanded that we think about their writings in ways that I think go beyond um, some of the the more traditional disciplinary methods that we have. So that's sort of how I was thinking about discipline, and you know, Cezelle is is one example that allows us to see, um, you know, the value of a kind of an interdisciplinary methodology um, in in analyzing her writings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that kind of gets me to think: Were there any um, were there any particular surprises that you encountered in um, sort of looking um, looking at all these sources beyond um, sort of maybe expected um, expected sources of um, a, a literary project or intellectual history? Any like big surprises? Um. Yeah, yes. So the visual, the visual was always surprising. And by that, I mean, I would come across these photographs, right? So it's one thing to look at like people's private letters and think, okay, like ethically, how do I analyze this as an intellectual source, knowing very well that this is a letter that was never meant for me, knowing that I'm entering a kind of a space of intimacy, right? Um, and with a letter, you can paraphrase, you can do extracts, you can, you know, you can you can kind of work around the ethical questions there. Photographs were fascinating because either I stumbled upon them in the archives or people who learned of my research would send me photographs of their family members, right? That that were kind of related to the project. So I remember um, someone sent me a photograph. He's the grandson of the nurse who cared for Paulette Naudal after the submarine attack during World War II, right? In this hospital in the UK. And this man just out of the blue emails me this photograph of Paulette Naudal in her hospital bed. Now, what do you think about entering a space of intimacy, right? Um, there's something about looking at a person in that moment of vulnerability, there's something about looking at, um, you know, someone like Leopold Senghor in his speedos at the beach with his kids in a photograph in the archives, right? That there's something about the visual, the sort of the totality of the image that 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 doesn't quite allow for a sort of a savvy circumvention of the ethics of sort of laying bare people's private lives, right? Just sort of put, putting people's business out of the intellectual streets, if you will. Um, and so, so yeah, the photographs were surprising because I was never quite prepared for the level of intimacy, the, the sort of the sort of the private sphere that was on display um, in those photographs. And and then when I would come across them, I had to really sort of sit back and think. You know, to what degree is this is this something I can incorporate in my project, or to what degree is this something that that remains where it is, right? To maybe to be found by the next person. So those were the surprises. I was always coming across these fascinating pictures and being like, "Whoa, what do I do with these?" Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that um, what you say that intimacy um, kind of gets me to think about the structure of your book, um, in which each chapter, except for one, uh, which focuses on two of, of these actors, um, is almost semi-biographical. Um, I'd say each chapter focuses on uh, one person, um, with the exception of the one that focuses on two. Um, and that, uh, to me as a reader, had um, a very intimate feel. Um, is that what you were going for with the book? Um, 
what what did you find um, uh, productive about um, the structure of the book? Yeah. Um, so the structure didn't quite begin that way um, because this book grows out of my dissertation research. Um, in the dissertation, the structure was really quite different. So each chapter had two people and those two people were always a man and a woman. There was a very strange kind of coupling in that in that structure, right? So to, to kind of work work still with with your um with your language of intimacy there, um right that, but but here was the rationale behind that. Early on in the in the dissertation process, um I talked about my research uh, with with a scholar who I hoped would be um you know a, a reader, advisor, mentor, etc. And they said to me, "Well, your research sounds interesting, but I don't care about black women." And I thought, oh. So what this means to me then is that I need to find a hook. I need to hook each of these women onto someone who is recognizable, someone who is legible, right? Um, and that that legibility necessarily passes through the idea of of prestige and name recognition, and and right in the academy. So because what what the, because essentially what happens is when I talk about my research before the book was published, right? Um, you know, people at conferences, etc., would say, "So who are you writing about?" And I'd say, "I'm writing about Awaketa," and I'd get these sort of like really blank looks, and I, I had to say Suzanne Cezanne, Islana Robson. And I've still sometimes got blank looks and I'd say, Emmy Cezelle's wife and Paul Robeson's wife. And then the recognition kind of dawns, right? On, on, on you, you'll see that in the facial expression. Um, and so, and so that really, really uh, shaped the initial structure of this project as always needing to route black women through figures who were more recognizable. There's still a little bit of residue of that left in the final book, right? So you have um, Henri Lopez in the chapter on um, on Andre Bluin, and you have quite a bit of Usman Semben in the chapter on Awaketa. Um, but but you know that that structure is largely gone. Ultimately, the 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 point for me was to realize that if someone didn't care about black women, they weren't going to care about black women just because I put Amy Cezanne next to them, right? And so for the the idea of having each woman stand alone in each chapter was a question of working out for myself and hopefully for my reader what it means to hear and to think about their voice and their work on its own right as part of a larger conversation certainly but not not needing to be legitimized by their position within that conversation um so that's that's ultimately what informed the final structure right is i have each one alone with the exception as you know right of that middle chapter that i, I like to think of as a bridge that brings together you know um uh south america the caribbean and uh west and central africa through um vial and ebuetel's geography um, but essentially what I was going for by letting each woman stand alone was to was to work out, I think, for myself what it means to take seriously my central contention in the book that each of these women is a political protagonist, right? It's a, it's a central figure and a central character in this larger story of anti-colonialism in the French Empire. Yeah, um, and that leads right into my uh, my next question. Um, which is about the term political protagonist. Um, and I think in the book, you give us um, a really good sense of, of what that term means and why it's important. Um, um, but I wanted to ask more about your process for coming to that term um, and um, why you think it, uh, it's important um, compared to um, historical actor or um, another, another term that, um, that you don't end up using as much as the political protagonist. Hmm. So I'm I'm sort of, I'm a firm believer, you know, in in hashtag cite black women. Um, you know, so so as as I, I note in the book and elsewhere, um, you know, this term comes from Keisha Khan Perry, right? Keisha Khan Perry's work, um, particularly in a talk that she gave uh, about her research on um, you know black women and. Um, uh, and and land and space and territory and dwelling and tenement in Brazil, and it, at the very beginning of her talk, I recall her, you know, describing black women in Brazil as political protagonists in this larger story, and that really hit home for me because up until then, I had been struggling with the question that you asked me early on about discipline and method, right? I had been struggling, you know, going out on the job market in that moment with 
the fear of being perceived as neither fish nor fowl, right? As neither literary enough nor historical enough. Um, what political protagonists allowed me to do was to claim those multiple disciplinary tools because a protagonist for me is very much a literary term, right? And a lot of my training is literary. Um, and so, you know, a protagonist allowed me to think about each of these seven women, like I said, right, as central characters in a larger story about decolonization in um, in French, you know, sort of West and Central Africa and the Caribbean. But that a political protagonist also allowed me to engage with the political and historical dimensions of, right, their sort of central roles. Um, and so... To, to think about Black women as, as, as actors, historical actors, like you say, certainly, but as more than that, right, as also chroniclers of their role, even as they were acting out those roles. I think that's that duality that's so fascinating for me with all of these women is that as they were working, as they were thinking, as they were leading these movements, they were also chronicling their roles. And so, so it's kind of a, a dual track, right, of, of living out and acting um, and writing, which was sometimes parallel and sometimes, right, overlapped in really fascinating ways. And so for me, that's what the term political protagonist gets me. It allows me to think about that duality or really honestly that multiplicity of roles um, that, that Black women played as they wrote about, as they chronicled their roles and movements, as they led those movements, as they challenged, right, some of those movements as well. Um, and so for me, that's sort of the, the value of that term. I'm sure there, there are other terms that would work as well, uh, but this one allowed me to think about my own methods the, and the, the lenses I was bringing to reading the text and the lives of the women I was writing about. Yeah, absolutely. Um... And uh, I have sort of a final question about um, about structure and process. Um, and you, you kind of already anticipated this uh, question in a way um, by uh, speaking a bit about how this uh, this book changed from um, from the dissertation structure. Um, but I still want to ask, uh, how did you come to focus on these seven particular women? Um, there's a moment in the introduction where um, where you mentioned that there are other people you could have focused on other um, political protagonists who, uh, who sort of fit this, um, this category of, um, of actors uh, thinking about and working through um, citizenship uh, and decolonial citizenship. Um, but yeah, how, how these particular uh, women and how would the story have been different um, with a focus on other political protagonists? Mm, that's a really thought-provoking question um, about how the story could have been different. So I'll, I'll start with sort of the, the the how of coming to each of these women. Um, essentially, e each woman sort of emerges. I keep saying emerges organically, but but that's really what does happen, right? Is that each woman kind of leads me to the next. And so I wrote I wrote the book, I, well, the dissertation first, and the book very much in the order. Or pretty much in the order that the 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 book um, the book chapters currently are, right? So I began with Suzanne Cézère, um, and and you know reading about Cézère arriving in Martinique on the SS Bretagne, you know as um, as World War II begins, you know, then leads me to Paulette Nardal, who gets on the same ship, you know, and then the ship is sunk, you know, during during the, the attack, um, you know, and then and then in Paulette Nardal's archive, you find correspondence with other women, um, right, uh, Jeanne Vial and Ebutel working together, both of them corresponding with Aslanda Robeson in really interesting ways. Um, you know, at one point, uh, André Bluin's daughter, who I was in contact with, Eve Bluin, who's a, 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 an amazing filmmaker, um, you know, said that, you know, Bluin and Vial, you know, like likely knew each other because they were sort of in, in similar circles when we think about the idea of, of métissage, um, you know, or sort of um, in interracial uh, relationships and in the colonial setting uh, in in, um, in Francophone Africa. And so anyway, so all of these connections, right, just kind of emerge as you're working through these archives. Um, 
I remember one particularly interesting moment where, you know, I had read in this, in this, um, I talk about this in the book, right? I had read in the, all of these newspapers, so the official record, right? In the newspapers, you know, it's that um, uh, Eugenie Ibuitel has a press conference in New York and in attendance is Sandra Robeson in her capacity as a journalist. And she kind of like lambasts Ibuitel, right? For being a, a bit of a sellout, right? For being a sort of a representative of French colonial government, because in that moment, Ibuitel is a member of the French parliament and and isn't really pushing for independence from France for um, African colonies so much as she's pushing for kind of an incorporation of the colonies into this, you know, French Federation or this French Union. And so the official record is that, you know, Asana Robeson really dislikes Ibuitel because their political views are so radically different. And then I'm sitting in Eslanda Robeson's archive, um, you know, at, at Howard, and I come across a Christmas card from Eugenie Ibuitel, um, you know, and this really lovely letter, you know, about, about just the connections that they have, um, about this project that uh, Robeson wanted to do, where she would have Paul Robeson, right, be the, be the actor who who kind of incarnates the, the life of um, Ebuitel's husband, Félix Ebuit, and his role in the French resistance during World War II. And I thought, wow, right, in this private archive, it's a completely different story. Um, and so, you know, for, for me, that's that's part of what's, what's you know, what's what's interesting about how I, how, for me, the process of choosing who I wrote about, um, right, is that each woman's archive just kind of opened up possibilities for thinking about the next woman. And that when I talk about network works and connections and mobility as a, a strategy of, of resistance, if you will, right, as an anti-colonial political orientation in these women's works, it's really because that is played out in the archives and that played out in their lives. And so that's kind of how, how I made that choice. Um, how would the story have been different with other, with other women? That's a question about possibility. And I love that because because it, it allows us to think about the different ways, the different directions, right, that the story can open out into. Um, I think about some of the women that I, I did not write about, like Jelti Alshimed, who appears only briefly, um, like Jeanne Leroux, who I think barely appears at all in the book, and who I'd like to take up in a, in a subsequent book, um, who I found to be much more radical than the women that I did write about. And I think there is something there to be said about about Black women's political orientation and about the preservation of archives, right? About, about how likely one is to have archives that are intact, that are expansive, and that are well-preserved in sort of government or official institutions, right? Depending on how kind of accommodating or palatable one can be made or how completely radical and like unable to be recuperated in a kind of a respectable, right, political narrative, right, one is. And so I like to think of Jeanne Leroux, for example, who was a feminist in Martinique at the same time that Paulette Nardal was doing her work and who was um, affiliated with the Communist Party and was much more left-leaning and much more radical than Paulette Nardal. And what it means today to work through sort of her fragmented archive as opposed to the more complete archive of a woman like Paulette Nardal, who certainly, right, her ideas were disruptive too, to a French kind of racial gendered hierarchy, um, right? But who today has, has streets named after her in Martinique and in France, right? That there's something that can be recuperated by a national narrative that, that certainly is enacting its own erasures, but renders her more, um, more legible and more palatable in that national narrative. So all that to say, I think the story might have been more fragmented with different women, but a productive kind of fragmentation. I think that the story might have been even more radical right, with different women. Um, but it also may have been a more difficult story to tell. There may have been less of that, that wholeness of reconstructing, right, a kind of an intellectual genealogy because of the fragmented nature of those archives. Um, you know, so, so I'll stop there because there's so many possibilities, right? Like, depending on who you pick, the story looks completely different. But I think that's part of what's, what's interesting and productive about the possibilities that this kind of research offers. So, you know, if, if anyone is listening out there, please go do research on Jeanne Leroux and others because there's so much more of this story to be told. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that um, your reflection on, on archives I think is really interesting and it's, it's part of the discussion in the book. Um, 
in um, in the terms of what you what you call invisibility versus visibility. Um, as you say, like some of these women are are visible in the sense that um, we knew we know who they are potentially because of um, the well-known works and biographies of their husbands. Um, or as you said, with um, Paulette Nardell, there are street names named after her. So there's a certain visibility and yet an invisibility of um, of uh, the content actually, uh, or the volume of um, of archives and records of these um, of these women, of these black women. Um, so I, yeah, I just want to ask you to talk a little bit more about the invisibility, invisibility, um, and why maybe why that's a more useful um, lens rather than silence, archival silence. Hmm. Oh, that's such a fascinating question. Um, because those, I guess, yeah, you're right. Those those frameworks do very different things, right? When we think about archives, we think about silence, and 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 so then our response is to it's to is to amplify voices, if you will, right? To to speak into that silence, the degree that's possible, and that's that. It's a challenging thing because it comes it comes with its with its promises, right? Of redress, of redressing something that is that that has gone wrong, right? That that is that is a miss in the archives, a kind of an absence. But at the same time, it also comes with its pitfalls, right? Of what it means to, in some ways, sometimes ventriloquize the people that we're writing about or talking about or thinking about. Um, visibility and invisibility do something different. But I, I suspect come with their own promises and pitfalls as well. So for me, I, I, I guess I chose that framework because I was because when I sat down to do research on Jeanne Vial in the French Senate archives, I was immediately confronted with visibility and invisibility, right? Because you know, as, as I talk about in the book, I, I walk into the archival reading room and the archivist says, here is a portrait of Jeanne Vial, right? And, and my colleague found this in the basement. And because you were coming, we thought it'd be interesting to put it up. And so there's Jeanne Vial. Now, I wouldn't know it was Jeanne Vial because as you can see from the book, right, it's a bit of a kind of a deconstructed image, right? In some ways, it's not a necessarily a, a terribly realistic, I think, or a realist portrait, if you will. Um, but, at, but, but at the same time, right, there, there is no, there is no contextualizing information around that image beyond what the archivist says to me. So anybody else who walks in that reading room, if you don't know what Jean-Vierre looks like, then there's just this really pretty colorful portrait of a woman looking at you. So what does it mean to be in the house of legislature, if you will, right? In the French Senate, quite literally, and to see, but also not see Jean-Vierre. That's a, I think for me a little bit of a different question than the than than you know the framework of, of silence and, and amplifying voices. What it means to see, I think, is less about recognizing that the black women I write about spoke, which is what which is what right filling in the silence asks us to do. It is more of an introspective, I think, framework that asks us to consider what is the work that it takes for us to see, right? So silence is about the subjects in the archive and visibility and visibility is partly about us as scholars and what we do with the subjects in the archive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say that's part of what, what visibility and visibility gets us or get, got me in doing this work. Um, but it's a question that I, I continue to think about, right, quite a bit, right, even, even as I work on, on, on my subsequent projects, um, it's ultimately what, what are the ethics of, of whatever it is that we do with and to and alongside the people that we're that we're writing about um, in these archives that are also these sort of like empty gaping holes sometimes, right? Um, so so yeah, I guess I'll just kind of stop there because I, I could go on in this sort of like stream of consciousness reflection on visibility and invisibility. But but I I, I do think for me, right, I, I came to that framework largely because I, I was sitting in this room and looking at this portrait and was trying to figure out what it would take for me to see, like to really see Jeanne Vial. And that comes up again when Suzanne Tézier, right, I write about in the book, 
talks about in her essay, The Great Camouflage, what is it, what, what does it take to see, like really see the Caribbean, right? Beyond the postcard image, um, you know, beyond whatever, whatever narratives, um, you know, uh, um, empires like to weave about their colonies, is what is the work that it takes for us to really see? Yeah, thank you. I think that's um, a really, um, really useful consideration um, for anyone doing archival research. Um, really, it's always so important to think about um, the ethics of approaching these uh, the historical subjects that we write about. Um, and it, it's so interesting to think about how they appear and how they don't appear to us and how that informs um, how we how we write about and, and research them. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit um, to now talk about um, one of the major um, arguments and interventions of your book, which is um, decolonial citizenship, um, which uh, in your introduction, you, you write, um, quote, remakes, redefines the very terms on which collective identity and belonging can be imagined. Um, and I think it's really interesting. You have a note where you say that um, decolonial citizenship um, is distinct from uh, decolonizing citizenship um, in that it's um, not always a complete divestment from structures of power and established spaces of political influence. Um, so I wanna ask you about um, sort of coming to the term decolonial citizenship um, in relation to, but, but also distinct from uh, decolonizing citizen, citizenship. Um, why is why is this distinction helpful for you? Um, and and what do you think it means for citizenship, but also thinking about decoloniality more broadly? Hmm. Yeah, I think what was helpful for me about this distinction is working in particularly in the context of the French Caribbean, right? So so spaces like Martinique and Guadeloupe that are today overseas departments of France. Um, where that, that was the decolonization strategy, right? I think today we sort of take independence for granted as, as, the, as the sort of de facto outcome of, of decolonization. But even independence as decolonization, I think is, is a little bit suspect, right? When we, when we consider all the work that's being done today um, on kind of right, the, the, the legacies of colonialism, right? Thinking back to like Kwame Nkrumah and, and his articulation of neocolonialism. And so, Working in the French context is, is really challenging when you sort of have to, this is what happens, right? Is that you sort of have to justify how it is even possible to talk about decolonization in spaces that did not become independent. And so for me, the distinction between decolonial and decolonizing was partly to get at that but also partly because qu quite honestly, right, um, a lot of the, the women that I write about really were not interested in independence. And some of them were from territories that today are still not interested in independence. Um, you know, and like I said, right, understandably so, because independence itself, as we, as we now clearly see, is not necessarily synonymous with decolonization. But there is no, there is no initial um, sort of impetus to break away, right? To sort of that that complete rupture and removal from France as as the sort of intellectual inheritance, the sort of philosophical inheritance, the sort of like this this long history that connects these spaces to France. Um, that there, there was never at any point, I think, for, for most of these women, there are some exceptions, right? Asada Ropes is an exception, um, Awakata is an exception, but for a lot of them, decolonization still meant some type of connection to France. And so decolonial for me allows us to understand the kind of the spectrum that we're on, right? When we think about moves away from or disruptions to coloniality, um, that decolonial citizenship isn't quite right. Like like you like you noted, um, isn't quite that complete rupture uh, from France, but it's also not a complete sort of removal from the spaces of power, right? That define citizenship in the first place. So that's the thing that's interesting, right? Is that in my mind 
you know, decolonizing citizenship would mean extricating oneself entirely from the halls and corridors of, you know, national and imperial power. And so you would not have, you know, a, a, a Jean Vial or an Ebuetel in the French Senate, um, on, you know, within the framework of decolonizing citizenship. But what's interesting for these seven women is that certainly they understand and focus on alternate spaces of making and forming community and kinship outside of these exclusionary and oppressive spaces of dominant power. And yet they also do not cede ground in those spaces of power. And so by that, I mean, Awaketa, for example, understands the power and importance of grassroots organizing of African women kind of reclaiming things like land, right? That sort of dispossession of land that colonialism enacts, of reclaiming the land, of reclaiming public space. But she's also very much focused on voting and electoral kind of electoral enfranchisement for women also as a strategy, right? She doesn't cede ground just because she understands that total liberation doesn't come from voting. And so for me, that's what decolonial citizenship does, right? Is that it thinks about what it means to disrupt and dismantle these colonial structures. Um, but it thinks about them from, from a variety of spaces, including from spaces that are sort of within, incorporated within, right? That sort of oppressive and dominant structure. The degree to which they are successful, now that's debatable, right? This is not to, to sit here and say, right? That decolonial citizenship is, is satisfactory or complete or finished, um, or or even or even potentially right the the route to liberation. But it is to say that when we take the work and thought of these seven women together, thinking along the spectrum of what it means to disrupt coloniality in varying ways, um, right, gets us to to decolonial citizenship. Um, so so yeah, that's sort of what I think what what I found to be kind of helpful about that framework. Yeah. Um... And yeah, and I think one of the strengths of the book um, is that you do give this uh, plurality to the content of decolonial citizenship, or rather you let um, there's space in decolonial citizenship to talk about, as you say, um, different actors who, who disagree with each other and who have really, um, in some cases, stark, um, starkly different or starkly opposed understandings of um, the decolonial possibilities of uh, French citizenship, so that that really stands out, as you say, in the actors um, that you discuss who um, see decolonial possibilities in departmentalization or um, the uh, the French Union, um, or those who who seek um, what we might normally think of in uh, decolonial terms of of national liberation, or um, in the case of Eslanda Robinson, who's who's the subject of your last chapter. Um, a global South identity that that decenters France. Um, uh, so I could imagine a book in which these, um, although you do talk about, of course, the differences and and um, potential disagreements in these uh, viewpoints, um, I could imagine a book in which these disagreements are um, more pronounced or take a more central focus um, in the the subject of decolonial citizenship. Um, but rather, I, I think that your narrative um, works more to highlight uh, the sum of these parts as a pluralistic challenge to colonial domination. Um, so, so why did you find it more productive to focus on collaboration rather than conflict? Um, and what do you think this approach, uh, this, uh, like how might this approach might be useful for other scholars writing on or activists engaged in political work? Hmm. Um, I, I, I focus on collaboration over conflict, partly out of my own need and, and right, like my, my personal need and desire for wholeness in this, right, this sort of like, in this fragmentation. And so, and so to think about those fragments as, like you say, right, as, as, as plural and multiple as opposed to as necessarily in conflict 
um, was because I, I wanted this sort of like harmonious diaspora story, right? I, I wanted I wanted all of my women to get together and get along and have this one cohesive vision. And one of the one of the most productive bits of advice that I got from my dissertation advisor as I was writing was it, it is it is not your job to smooth over those differences right like like let your women do what they do um and that was really helpful because that sort of like liberated me to be like okay great well you know sometimes they they didn't always agree and and that's fine um but what's productive even in those moments of disagreement um and and so so you know part of that was i think my my own my own need for for a story that i wanted to be whole and complete and I think I'm using those terms because I'm thinking also, right, in terms of, of the current project that I'm working on that reflects a lot more on fragmented archives and what that means. Um, but all th that is, that is however, to, to also say, though, that, that in many ways, that emphasis on collaboration over conflict also emerges in the archives that I was looking at, right? So a, a lot of what I do in the book really just is a matter of just kind of like stating what I'm seeing in the archives, like what these women are doing. There was not, there were not as many moments of conflict, I think, as 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 we might we might we might think that there were. Um, and 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 so I'm I'm thinking, for example, about the way that we chart these kind of like intellectual ge genealogies as sometimes necessarily in conflict, right? So when we think about negritude, for example, we think about Caesarean negritude and Sangorian negritude as being, you know, really, really quite different and sometimes even at odds with one another in terms of what really is that connecting ligament or connecting thread, right, that unifies the African diaspora. Is it history, as Cezanne says, or is it sort of a Black essence, as Sangor says? And we think about those two things in conflict. We think about, um, we think about rightly or wrongly, right? A kind of a, a, a an MLK tradition versus a, a Malcolm X tradition. Um, we think about Du Bois and Washington, right, as two intellectual trajectories that are in conflict. Um, and and I I was interested in thinking about my women also as have as being part of these sort of intellectual genealogies, but there really wasn't that framing of right like staking a claim, um, you know, in in an idea, um, and and sort of you know seeing seeing that claim to its end without really bringing in right other other possible um, threads or or frameworks. I didn't really see that as the way that they approach their intellectual work. And so, and so then that emerges in the book, right? Is that even in the moments where they disagree with foundational ideas about what decolonization looks like, right? In the case of um, Robeson and, and Ebuitel at this press conference, for example, there were also so many other moments where they were coming together across those differences, um, you know, to, to, to do other kinds of work. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that's sort of why I think the book looks the way that it does. Um, it's partly because the women themselves seem to prize or prioritize collaboration over conflict. And, and I understand that there's something, there, there's something very gendered in our expectations of, of women as sort of like working harmoniously together in collaboration and then sort of your solitary male genius, right, doing doing their work alone. Um, and so this, this is not really to, to play into, I think, that kind of gendered narrative, um, but it is to, to think about what these women found most productive and and if we are if we make the contention that things like transnational mobility and transnational networks were productive for them, then we have to understand the the crucial nature or the centrality, um, you know, of collaboration to that political orientation. Yeah, um, yeah, and thinking with um, uh, transnational or global um, collaboration, um, which I think is a really powerful. Um, point in your book, um, you suggest in the conclusion that um, that the work of these protagonists um, quote highlights a simple simple but sometimes elusive truth that a global problem cannot have a national solution. Uh, the coloniality of power was and remains uh, a global problem, and its eradication would have to take seriously global solidarity as a strategy of resistance. Um, so I just want to ask here, sort of, about your um, 
your approach or methodology thinking globally as opposed to thinking nationally, um, which I, I find really productive um, as someone who also does um, French history, but tries to think globally about it. Um, so, and, and how, has, how did you, I guess, come to this, um, this way of thinking globally? Um, and how has it shaped your, um, your future projects or I guess now your current project after this one? Oh yeah, I mean, there, that that's a I think that that was an easier one for me, right? Because there was no way there, there is no there is no thinking nationally when you think about the French Empire, right? I, to, as much as France would like that, um, there 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 is no thinking nationally because ultimately, what's interesting for these from these women is that for them they're not just thinking about blackness they're not only right thinking about blackness or only defining um right the sort of like diasporic um sort of sort of ethos and, and framework and 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 community and i i don't use only in a um a kind of a, a reductive sense right but what i mean to say is that they're also right in addition to doing that also challenging what frenchness means and they're challenging frenchness and the boundaries of france right that to already to already kind of live up to france's own ideals of universalism right of the french republic and we can debate those ideals uh, right but to, to live up to that one would have to go beyond the boundaries of france right for universalism to be universal um, right so to kind of take france to hold france at its word if you will and so then you know in in, in that sense it becomes it becomes quite apparent that you you have to think beyond beyond the borders of france you have to think beyond national borders um you know to 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 sort of get at what is what is fundamentally at play in their work against imperialism, right? Not only because France's empire spans or spanned the globe at one point, uh, but also because the fundamental logics of white supremacy at the heart of that empire, right? Those logics are global, and so then for these women, they necessarily had to had to think in this in this sort of transnational and really quite global way in order to, to, to disrupt the fundamental logics of global white supremacy. Um, and so that that's sort of that's that's sort of I think for for me part of part of the the value um, you know of of this thinking. Um, I I know that there was a second part to that question, and I'm trying to kind of hold hold on to it. Please remind me the second part. Oh, of the sure. Question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how how is thinking globally um, shape in this project shaped your uh, your future or your current work? Ah, right. Yes. Um, so, so first, I guess, but before I get it, I'll also say, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you quoted that portion from, from the conclusion. And thank you for reading all the way to, to, to the end, um, <laughs> to the conclusion. I, I, say, I say that because, you know, I, I understand that there, there, there are so many demands on our time as academics. And, you know, sometimes we're reading a work for for the chapter or the portion that is most relevant to what we're doing, right? And so, you know, not not knocking, you know, anybody that doesn't get the conclusion, but the conclusion I think is interesting for me because that's the part I wrote last. That's the most recent part of this book. And that to me sounds the most like my voice now. Um, and so it's, it's maybe maybe one of my favorite parts of the book right now. I'll say that as a kind of a transition to to the work that, that I'm doing now. So in the conclusion, I, I think a little bit about um, a much more contemporary text. Right. So um, the, the the journal Awa La Revue de la Femme Noire, um, you know, that that circulated throughout throughout French West Africa. Um, and and what I found interesting there, again, you know, we talked about surprises earlier was to find Paulette Nardal, write A letter by Paulette Nardal pop up in this in the Senegalese journal. And so where my research is going now, I'm working now on a book on um, what, what I'm I'm thinking about as French Caribbean feminisms. I, so I transitioned to, to thinking about that, you know, through Awa because there, there's a way to make a claim for Awa, not only as a woman-centered journal, but as a, an explicitly feminist journal, even if it didn't use the word feminism. And it becomes interesting to think about how that echoes or ripples across the Atlantic and um, plays out in the French Caribbean as well, where you have these, you know, you have scholarship that traces a, an intellectual genealogy of like, women's women's organizations or you know the these associations like right, right, the, the the femina in in organizing um 
but but you don't quite have an explicit claim to feminism, right? That there is a French Caribbean feminism. Um, and so my goal in this new project is to think about French Caribbean feminism from the abolition of slavery to the present day, right? To, to what degree can we trace um, varying kinds of sort of, right, feminist, feminist thought, um, feminist informed activism, uh, you know, through, through labor movements, through writings, through organizations from that period um, till today. And I, I use the term French Caribbean, right, to come back to our discussion about geography and global thinking, I'm using French Caribbean as opposed to like Antillian, for example, quite deliberately, because I want to think about both the connections to France and the connections to the Caribbean, right? That 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 Martinique and, and Guadeloupe are, are sort of um, challenging and disrupting, but also creating these really interesting connections to feminist thought in France and in the English uh, speaking Caribbean. Um, so that's, that's the project that is sort of, right now on on my mind. Um, it's one of two projects on my mind. So I talked a lot about archival fragmentation and wholeness. Um, the project that I just described on French Caribbean feminisms is what I hope will be my third book. Um, my second book, which is, which is coming together now, um, is a book on enslaved children's writings uh, in the French Atlantic. And and so, and so that's where a lot of my thinking right now about what it means to, to work with fragmented archives, to seek and, and desire and hope for wholeness and redress, and the ways that that really fragmented archive thwarts, right, that, that effort at reconstruction and wholeness um, is, is the project that is uppermost or foremost on my mind right now. So, so I'm working right now on that second book on children and slavery, and then hopefully transitioning into uh, French Caribbean feminisms um, in a little bit. So, but anyway, all that to say, right, global thinking, global thinking is central to both of these projects, right, because you have to think about geography, you have to think about always how, how um, the people who are sort of hovering on the margins of empire, if you will, right, are actually really seriously challenging, you know, the, the, the borders and boundaries of empire, they're challenging empire's vision of itself as sort of, um, right, as, as sort of encompassing everything, right, as sort of like encompassing the entire globe. But at the same time, they're enacting their own, right, kind of global network of, of, of uh, intellectual production, of cultural production, of meaning making and of community formation, um, you know, in, in ways that are, that are, I hope, I hope I will find that are, that are liberatory um, uh, it, it, and particularly think about that in our, in our current moment. Yeah. Um, and on the topic of, of conclusions and, and current moments, um, I have a, a last question that I, uh, about your, your book in the context of 2020 uh, that I want to pose. Um, so, so this year, of course, has, we've seen um, racist violence as well as widespread anti-racist activism um, fixed as mainstays in public life in um, both the United States and France um, in perhaps particularly visible ways. Um, so I want to ask, how has your book been received in these, in these two contexts? Uh, and what do you hope your work contributes to the present moment? Um, reception is a challenging question. Um, because I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I hope I know, but I'm, but I'm also, I'm also hesitant to sort of, right, put, put my place and put, put myself in the place of readers and, and, and speculate on their, on their reception. I'm hoping that it's a, that it's a positive reception. I'm hoping that, um, that that what this book does is to 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 enter into a conversation that really has been ongoing for a long time, right? I mean, there are people who've been doing this work for so so long, um, and so you know the the political context that you that you you just um, described has certainly certainly amplified, right? Some of that work that that um, has up until now been been ignored by by France's very um, very, very, very interesting brand of sort of color blindness or race blindness, as has, as has been called in scholarship, um, is is that 
there, there are these explosive moments or these flashpoints where France can, can no longer ignore or can no longer throw its rhetoric of colorblindness um, at those moments, not, certainly not with as much success as always um, or as in the past. Um, and so what I hope my book contributes that conversation, first of all, is a grounding in an intellectual history that is as French as it is other things, right? So there's this current, there's this current right now in sort of French political rhetoric that talking about race and racism in France is to import an American, right, sort of framework um, that is not applicable to the French Republic because universalism. Um, and, and the way that that enacts this disavowal of everybody, right, from, from the Césaires to, to the Nardals to, my goodness, France Fanon, how on earth do you claim, right, that, that to think about race and racism is, is certainly not French and not applicable to France when, when Fanon has, right, this, this devastating, um, you know, critique and, and, and body of work on the alienating effects of racism, right, on, on the psyche. Um, and so, and so what I hope that this book contributes that conversation is to continue to chip away at that rhetoric of colorblindness, to continue to chip away at the rhetoric of universalism and French Republican ideals as a sort of like blanket um, kind of immunity from, from, from the state ever, ever being able to, to enact racism. Um, and, and, to, and to ground these conversations in what really has been a long history um, that certainly predates the seven women, but continues with these seven women in the crucial, crucial moments of World War II, right? Of black French thinkers who are thinking blackness, who are thinking Frenchness, who are thinking how those two things disrupt one another, um, you know, and, and who, are, who are thinking very critically about the foundations of France, about its imperial foundations um, and, and, and how, right, of, of the Republic um, and how those imperial foundations continue to, to enact the, the legacy of inequality that we see today. Um, so that's, that's my hope. Now, the, the degree to which the book does that, I, I, I don't know, and I'd be eager to find out from, from readers, um, but that's, that's, that's my sincere hope in, in our current moment. Yeah, well, as someone, as a reader of the book, um, I definitely think it does that. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have it as a work uh, to continue to ask these questions um, as myself, someone who thinks about these things uh, in, in the French context. So thank you very much. Um, it's a really fantastic book. Uh, and I, I hope everyone has a chance to read it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your kind engagement with it and, and for, for the invitation to, to be in conversation with you today. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.